if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, uh, you can open with me to the book of Philippians. We've been walking through this for a few weeks now. We're going to uh, take it right through till at least Christmas. This is the best laid plans comes out here. We looked and said, okay, we've got this gap. What do we, what do we preach through the fall to get us to Advent? Because that's sneaking up on us like crazy. And so we looked and said, okay, Philippians, four chapters, eight or so weeks, should be no problem. Got through the first week and it was okay. I think we're, we're on pace. Uh, Steve took last weekend and I gave him the second half of this chapter. I said, you should be able to get through it, Steve, no problem. He got about halfway through it. So uh, we're, we're cleaning up that today. And then there was another, uh, someone else coming in a couple weeks and said, hey, do you think you could do chapter three? And he's like, not a chance, Sean. What are you thinking? So uh, the, the goal is to be done by Advent. Uh, <clears throat> we may have a few weeks left over in the new year, but we'll see how we get there. Uh, I will mention again that uh, we, uh, I won't be putting up kind of extended passages of scripture on the screens, and this is deliberate because I want us to open our Bibles up. I want you to have it in front of you. I w- I'd love if you had your own Bible in front of you. If you need one, by all means, take one from the middle of the room. That can be our gift to you if you don't want to take it home with you. But w- the goal is to, to teach us how to see these things. You don't need to come and hear someone uh, pull out this great stuff and not show you how we got it or how they got it. But we, we want to see the connections through the text. I want you to be writing notes in your, in your Bible or underlining, or if you're on your phone or iPad, you can do those things too in lots of different apps. Because we want to be able to remember what God has been teaching us. And one of the, the, the best gifts I think we can give to ourselves is when we go back through an older Bible and see stuff that we have learned before and see those notes that we've taken before uh, for a couple of reasons. They can remind us of how far we've come or they can remind us that we still need to learn this rotten patience thing that maybe someday we'll learn patience. But nevertheless, Philippians chapter one is where we are. Uh, In 2003, A hiker named Aaron Ralston was in Utah, and he was hiking around, and a boulder fell on him and pinned his right arm. Now He must have been deep in the backcountry because nobody found him for six days, and he tried to wiggle himself out and, and couldn't get himself free. So finally, after those six days, he took his multi-tool out of his pocket and with a dull pocket knife, amputated his arm so that he could free himself. Once he was away from the boulder, he then had to rappel down a 60-foot cliff and hike eight miles before he found someone else who could get him to a rescue helicopter. His story is made into a movie called 127 Hours, and he wrote an autobiography appropriately titled Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Why do I tell you this story? Not just because it's funny or whatever, or it's an interesting story. But I tell you the story because humans will do extraordinary things in order to stay alive. And so the biggest question leading into our text this morning is, what do you live for? This life is short. We don't know how long we have. So what are you living for? In our passage today, we're going to read uh, Paul writing to this little church, his, his, his favorite church, if you will, in Philippi. He's writing from a prison cell, and he's going to talk to us about the meaning of life and the glory of death. So let me read for us Philippians chapter 1, 21 through 30. Paul writes these words. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. 
I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and and that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage with the same conflict that I saw you had, and now hear that I still have. This first verse that we read, verse 21, is one of the most quoted verses in the whole New Testament, and for good reason. This is what living and dying are all about. Jesus. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Our English translations, we actually lose a little bit of the emphasis of Paul's original writing here. In the original language, in the Greek, there is no uh, verb between living and Christ or dying and gain. And so our translators find this a little bit awkward, and so they give us a verb. They give us the is. But others have noted that, that you could put other verbs in there as well as we try to describe this idea of purpose and meaning and, and foundation and power. He could, we could say uh, living means Christ or living depends on Christ or living honors Christ. But I appreciate how one commentator says that this verse is, is actually really loaded with a, a drumbeat repetition of the same sounds. Because in Greek, Christ is the word Christos, and gain is the worst word kerdos. You'll notice they rhyme. So we've got this heartbeat of Paul heard in the rhythm of these words. Living, Christ, dying, gain. Four words. A story that maybe helps and maybe is silly, but I'm going to tell it anyways. This summer, we were away with our family. We were in Vernon, and there's a, this great little bike trail from Vernon, I think, all the way down past Kelowna called the Rail Trail. We had our kids with us. They were seven and a half and four and a half or so, and so we said, let's go for a ride, kids. We parked the bikes, and we said, hey, look, there's, a, there's an ice cream store here. When we get back from our ride, we'll stop there for ice cream. Just so you know, we've got snacks loaded. We've got water loaded. This is going to be awesome. Now, we didn't do the 50 kilometers to Kelowna and back, obviously, but we thought, okay, let's go out about four or five, and then we'll turn around, we'll stop, we'll have a snack, we'll turn around and come back. Great. It's a nice, simple trail. It's flat. We get out four, we have our snack, we start to come back, and about a kilometer of the four or so that we went on our way back, the four-year-old's done. She's had enough. Bike lays down. She sits on the side and says, that's it, I'm not going. The, the waterworks comes. So we have to try to in- encourage this little Jana. So let's just, let's just ride to the next shadow. Then we'll have another snack. And so then as we're pedaling, he's, she's you know, got these little 10-inch tires on her bike, and, and she's pedaling away, her little legs are going. I say, Jenna, I think, I think, remember, we're going to get ice cream at the end. I think I hear your legs saying as they pedal, ice cream, ice cream. I, and she's like, Dad, my legs don't talk. No, no, ice cream. This is, this is just the rhythm of your pedal strokes. I hear it. Ice cream, ice cream. Again, it's, it's silly, but this is Paul's heartbeat. Living, Christ, dying, gain. Living, Christ, dying, gain. 
But notice what Paul does here as he, he turns his heartbeat into an application question for us. Because he says, hey, for me, living, Christ, dying, gain, and then it just kind of hangs there. How about you, he sort of says. So every one of us has to sort of wrestle this question to the ground. Hey, for me, living is blank. So let me ask you, I would love to hear from you, what are some ways that you would fill in that blank? Either yourself or maybe ways that you see others around you or our culture suggesting we should fill in that blank. For me, living is what? So what's right? Family. Family, totally. Anything else? Giving. Giving. Okay. Success, definitely. Any other thoughts? Service. Service. Sorry? Worship. Worship. Thank you. A couple I've got on my list here. Living is money, possession, stuff, pleasure, power, beauty, entertainment. So where this can really hit home, though, is when we sort of follow Paul's logic, where he says, for me, living is Christ, dying is gain. So if for me, living is any other thing, what is dying then? One pastor and commentator, Tony Marita, says this, if you say that living is money, then you would fill the second blank in with dying is being broke. After all, you can't take it with you. If you say living is pleasure or sexual pleasure, then you would say dying is having no more pleasure. What about power? Then dying is being powerless. If you say living is beauty, then you must conclude that dying is losing all beauty and rotting. If you live for entertainment, then your gravestone would read, dying is having no more fun. So our question that we need to wrestle to the ground again is, what will you live for? And what will you die for? Are you living this life and investing all you have in the statistically 70 to 80 or so years you have on this earth? Or are we spending and living for the only thing that will matter in 70 or 80 billion years? Jesus. So Paul's example and challenge here for us is to live totally for Christ. And if we do that, then it not only takes the sting of death away, but it actually makes it attractive because we get to go and be with Jesus. In this letter and other places, Paul's basically saying, remember, he's in a prison cell. He sees the executioner walking by from time to time, I'm sure. He says, listen, if you're going to kill me, fine. I get to go be with Jesus. If you're going to let me live, great. There is fruitful ministry left for me to do. If you're going to make me suffer, then I will experience it and I will be rewarded when I get to be with Jesus. And this type of mentality is unstoppable. And it can be ours too if we treasure Jesus above all other things. And this really is the key message of the next handful of verses, verse 22 through 26. It's, it's Paul's Christ-centered passion. See, for Paul, it's all about Jesus. Rejoicing in Jesus, relying on Jesus, and representing Jesus. In the 5th century, there was an evangelist in Ireland who had uh, what's now kind of an oft-quoted prayer, maybe you've heard it before, that that really puts uh, into words this reality quite well, I think. And, And he wrote this, As I arise today, may the strength of God pilot me, the power of God uphold me, the wisdom of God guide me. 
May the eye of God look before me and the ear of God hear me and may the word of God speak for me. May the hand of God protect me. The way of God lie before me. The shield of God defend me. The host of God save me. And may Christ shield me today. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit. Christ when I stand. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Amen. Maybe you've heard that prayer of St. Patrick before. A little bit different than what we celebrate St. Patrick's Day with, isn't it? What a great prayer. What a great ambition. What a great reminder for us to start our days with. Something like that. Paul carries on into these next handful of verses. I said 22 through 26. Expanding on this vision that the Christian has of, of being with Jesus. And I love Paul's kind of gut-level honesty here. He's, he's writing to, again, this, this church was his, his favorite church that he planted. He loved them. They loved him. He longed to be with them. And he, he puts himself out to them in this, this win-win situation. He's like, I, I mean, I'd love to go be with Christ, but man, I, I miss you guys too. I'd love to be with you. He describes himself as being torn or pressured, pulled in both directions. Again, he knows if he stays, there will be fruitful ministry days ahead where he gets to honor Christ more. But if he, he goes, he gets to actually be with Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, that's our predicament, our tension as well. And so as one writer says, this is why this is actually a win-win situation. It's like walking into a steakhouse and hearing, would you like a filet or a ribeye? Both great options. Nevertheless, even though he feels torn, Paul tells them his ultimate preference in verse 23. I long to go be with Jesus. I can't wait to go be with Jesus. And notice here, I think it's really interesting that Paul doesn't say, I long to get to escape from this life. I long to go get that house on the golden road that I'm promised. I'm, I, I'm longing to get the, the tenfold that Jesus promises us when we get there. No, he longs to be with Jesus. To be in the presence of Jesus. When he considers his impending death, he dreams about being with Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul writes, I would rather be away from this body and then at home with the Lord. Sometimes I fear that I don't long for heaven because I've built a pretty comfortable life right here. Do we long to be with Jesus? The Greek word depart that Paul uses here is actually a, a nautical term in Greek literature. It's, it's, uh, it's used to describe a, a ship leaving the port and heading to a destination. This isn't uh, something to be scared of. This isn't something you would have accidentally done. This is a, a deliberate heading to a goal. And so for the Christian, death is not the enemy. Death is like the boat that takes you to your destination, takes you where you want to go. And so... Tony Marita again says, Paul knew that death was better, but not just better, better by far. It was far better in every way, from the new body to the new heavens to the new earth, but most of all because we will dwell with the Savior. He challenges us, do you want to be with him? There's a relationship that supersedes all your relationships, a love like no other. And if you know Christ personally, then you can look at death and say that it is better than life because it means being with Christ. Do we long for this? Then endure with hope. Soon this world and this war will be over and we will see him and we will be with him. 
Yet even though Paul is being drawn and, and, and longs to go and, and being pulled towards heaven, he resolves that he will live every moment here for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel. He is keenly aware that, uh, Paul is, that until he's dead, God's not done. Which is an important thing for us to remember too. Paul knew that as long as he's here, as long as there's still breath in his lung, he's got a work to do to bring glory to God, to build the kingdom. There is fruitful ministry to do. And that's, it's the same for us. As long as we're here, God is still working in us. God is still working on us. Praise Jesus. God is still working through us to draw others to himself as well. So he knew that it was necessary for him to stick around, Paul did, and be a part of what he was, he was still here to do, to keep working with the church, laboring in verse 25 for the progress and joy of the Philippians and for their boasting in Christ. He knew he had to keep on doing his work until Christ called him home. One writer uh, said this, you know, we are actually invincible until God calls us home. That doesn't mean to uh, step out carelessly and say, okay, if I'm inv- invincible until God calls me home, if I step in front of this bus, it should stop because I don't think it's my time yet. But it should encourage us. It should give us the boldness to act that it doesn't matter what happens in this life. Living is Christ, dying is gain. That, that we are invincible until God calls us home. With these few verses in mind that we've got through so far, let me ask four questions that are, again, sparked by, especially verses 24 to 26. First, are you, are we serving others? Remember, Paul is, is a servant of Christ Jesus. He introduces himself in verse 1. He's serving this church. He's saying it's, it's necessary for the Philippians that he stay alive. And this is an important question for us as, as individuals and families and, and as the church, as this church, this congregation as well to wrestle with is, would anyone notice if I left? If I stepped out of my job, would there be a gap? Would there be a, a noticeable absent of, absence of light there that I brought with me? If our family moved, would our block miss what we brought to it? Would there be a noticeable absence of light on Grizzly Crescent if the Franklin family left? Yes. Oh. <laughs> and ultimately, as a, as a congregation, would Canmore or the Bow Valley notice if we closed our doors? Would they say, man, there, there's a gap where we had this, this group of people who loved us and cared about us and, and served us well, and, and now they're gone. Would they notice? Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, again, following with this, are you serving others question, a couple of weeks, Halloween will be here, and for all the wrestling that the churches have done and followers of Jesus have done over the centuries of, of how do we deal with this, this holiday, let me frame the question of what do we do with Halloween this way. Is there any other evening ever in the year where your whole neighborhood comes to your door? Or to flip it around, is there any other evening of the year where your whole neighborhood expects that you might show up on their door and they'll actually open it for you? And so as we head into this critical, I think, maybe that's not the right word, this this holiday where, where we've got the ability to have people come to us and us go to them. How can we love and serve and show Jesus to our neighborhoods on October 31st? The second question, are you serving for the progress and joy of others? 
That's what Paul says. He says, I've got to be here. I'm going to be here. So I want to be here so that the church can grow in their faith and grow in their joy. And that's the mission. That's what we're all commissioned to do, is that we would, we would strive to follow Jesus, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to, to, to mature towards Christ so that we can lead others that way, to make disciples, who make disciples, so that those disciples can also rejoice in all that's theirs because of Christ's work in them too. Third, are you serving so that others might boast in Jesus? Paul says his, his ultimate purpose in, in going back to the Philippians had to do with their growing uh, in their confidence of Jesus. He wants them to keep making much of Jesus. So again, Tony Morita says, what's this life about? It's about fruitful work. What does that mean? It's, it means doing our part. It means helping people grow in their faith. It means helping people have more joy in Christ. It means ministering so that others will glorify Jesus more and more. That's why Paul wants to stick around. He says he's, he's going to postpone his ultimate joy, what he longs to do, so that he can serve others, for the joy of serving others and pointing them to Jesus. Finally, the fourth question here is, how can we have this life? How can we have a life filled with meaning like we read Paul's having? One where we honor Christ by rejoicing in Christ, by relying on Christ, by representing Christ, and knowing that when we die, we will be with him. Well, we get Paul's story in a couple chapters in, in Philippians 3, 4 to 11, and I'll let you read that later. But, but the short version is, Paul met Jesus, and he was changed. He was a very religious person before he met Jesus, an extremely religious person, a persecutor of the church, but he didn't know Jesus. And then he traded religion for a relationship and for the righteousness that comes from Jesus and the, the new life that Jesus gives, and he found life and purpose and meaning, and he was Fine with sitting in a cell if it was for Jesus. This is good news. If we don't have meaning in life, we don't have this outlook on death, and grace is available to us in the person of Jesus, who came, as Philippians 2 said, he humbled himself, he lived the life that we were created to live, he died the death that, that our sin and rebellion deserved, he paid the penalty for sinners like us, and then he rose on our behalf, and now he is reigning over all things. There's only one way to have a life worth living and a death worth dying, and that is to look to Jesus who conquered death for us. And when we see Jesus as he is, we too will say, to be with him is far better. Paul continues by encouraging and challenging the Philippians to to live a life worthy of the gospel, starting in verse 27. And this is a a beginning of a bit of a practical application section of the letter, as if there hasn't been enough application already. So just a real quick reminder of what Paul has taught so far in chapter 1. First, he opened up with a a greeting, a a thanksgiving prayer. He introduced himself as as servants. He called the church saints. He he told them how he loves them, how he, how he, he longs to be with them. Then in verses 12 to 18, we get an update on, on Paul's present situation. And then we've just finished looking at Paul's outlook for the future, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. But now in verse 27, the, the tone changes a little bit. Paul puts on his teacher hat. Now, some translations start verse 27 with just the word only. But others, and I think maybe a better understanding is, is he says, hey, listen, just one thing. And it's if, if he was in the room, if he was standing in front of him, it's like he would have held up the one finger. He's like, pay attention, just, just one thing. If you get nothing else, pay attention at this moment. He's making a really serious point. And what is it? 
to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, as followers of Jesus, it's not just what we say that counts, but it's how we live it out. The way our actions represent Jesus, I would suggest in this day and age, are, are probably even more important than, than what we say about Jesus. And of course, it is essential to speak things about Jesus. Our, our neighbors won't come to know Jesus by us cutting their lawn well and, and to get a good theology by how well we shovel the straight lines or whatever else. So we have to speak, of course, but our actions are so critical. As one writer says, the gospel is about love, therefore we should be known as a loving people. The gospel is about justice, therefore we should be justice-seeking people. The gospel is about life, therefore we should display visible vitality and joy in our gatherings and in our relationships. The gospel is about liberty, therefore we should not live as stuffy legalists. The gospel is about humility, therefore we should be a humble people, gladly serving others. Now this letter to the church has already been filled with references to the gospel, but, but here Paul says that the gospel should also shape our lives and be on our lips. This type of life comes from our identity as citizens in the kingdom of God. And this is something as we sort of wrestled through this passage last night, we noted in the, the NIV and the, the ESV, there's, there's not this word citizens there, but in other translations, in the, the, the CSB, so the Christian Standard Bible, Paul uses this word, citizens. It's a political word. It says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy for the gospel of Christ. In other words, the manner of your life is important, he says, but as citizens of heaven. And this is a really key word. It's the only place Paul uses this kind of political citizenship language in his letters. So remember where he's writing. He's writing to this church at Philippi. This was a, a Roman colony. If you walked into Philippi, you would have recognized Rome being there. It was a place where lots of Roman military officials retired to, so would have had a a huge feel of Rome. If you were born there, you would have got Roman citizenship, which was a huge deal in those days. It was like this little colony, this little outpost of Rome. And the people there were really proud of that. He's saying, that citizenship is all well and good, but... As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whenever someone visits a Christian congregation, visits us, visits our church, and observes the way that we live, the way we love one another, they should be reminded of Christ's kingdom. Our churches are to be little outposts, embassies of the kingdom of God. And so just as Roman citizens enjoyed certain privileges and responsibilities, so do kingdom citizens. Greater privileges, greater responsibilities. We have the, the privilege of being a part of God's kingdom. And Paul reminds us that the gospel brought us into the kingdom. In Colossians 1, he says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In Colossians 1, 13. And so as kingdom citizens, we have the responsibility to, to live out the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and also remember that this world isn't our home. So Paul is encouraging in this way. He's reminding them, hey, the gospel has changed you. So now live this out so others can see it as well and see Christ's work in you as well. Then he gives us a couple of word pictures of what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And he does this a lot, but there's at least a couple here. And he emphasizes unity and community and togetherness, that they're to be in one spirit and of one mind or one accord. And so in these last couple of verses, look at how, how Paul draws their attention to teamwork and then purpose and fearlessness for this mission. First, uh, the teamwork piece. 
as we stand unified in the gospel, we stand firm in one spirit, we, we're working side by side. The language here has an emphasis of, of, of soldiers and athletes contending together to make the gospel known. When he says stand firm, this is, uh, means to hold one's ground. This is a military word. The Philippians were being attacked for believing in Christ. Again, remember, this is a little Roman outpost. When Paul showed up, there wasn't even a Jewish synagogue there for him to go and, and connect with other would-be believers. He says, hey, you've got Jesus. Stand firm in that. Maybe we need to be reminded of that too. I feel like we're being attacked. Maybe we feel outnumbered. But we're called to courageously stand against those who are hostile to the gospel. And the good news is that we do this together and we do it under the kingship of Jesus who's already won the ultimate battle. Then he talks, he uses some athletics language. as says, we, we work together, we contend together, we labor together or strive together side by side. And when you picture this side by side language, think of, of the offensive and defensive lines on a, on a foot, in a football game. You know, six or seven or however many big behemoths, you know, 300 pound giants that just crack into each other to try and, and, and push one way or another and gain some ground. Think of a rugby scrum where you, you don't want to be one person going into a rugby scrum against another team. Think of a, a, a game of tug-of-war. To win any of those things, you need the whole line contending, contributing together. And the church is like that. We advance the gospel side by side, working together, contending together, laboring together. A couple practical application points regarding this teamwork. Remember, we are in a battle. Paul talks about this often. He uses the language of soldiers often and athletes often. Especially Ephesians chapter 6, he reminds us of the Christian life. We're in a spiritual battle, but it's worth it. Jesus has won, and he's worth it. A second, remember, again, we're not in this battle on our own. He says, be one mind, one accord, one spirit. Work together. Work as a team. There's nothing like the local church to push this thing forward. So let me challenge and encourage you if you need it to to get off the bench get in the game be a part of a team pray go give encourage invest support and do it all in jesus name and in his power finally just a quick note on purpose and fearlessness throughout this letter uh, contending for the gospel is the main thing and paul will continue to encourage us that way to fiercely advance the gospel But here in verse 28, he says that we should keep doing that, keep advancing the gospel, and not be frightened in any way by your opponents. Again, frightened is a nice word, but the word here is only used in the New Testament when it's talking about a startled horse. He said, don't be like the spooked horse. Don't jump and run away. Stand firm. And so the encouragement, the admonishment here is not to be intimidated by whoever the opponents are. But stand firm, stand together, and boldly seek to spread the gospel. Lots of places Paul talked about opposition. In 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, I, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus until Pentecost because there's, there's a wide door for effective ministry here, which sounds great. Paul, run through that door. It's great. But he closes it up and says, yet many oppose me. There's, a, there's great options, but there's a lot of opposition. Effective ministry doesn't mean ministry without conflict. Paul says, many oppose me, and we too will have those who oppose us. But we stand together, and we do it in Jesus' name. 
Jesus as well in Matthew chapter 10 told his disciples, listen, don't fear those who kill the body but can't, deal with, can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to, do, uh, to destroy both soul and body. If you're a Christian, we have been already accepted by the one who ultimately matters. And I know it's, it's really easy to say in a nice context like this, but we don't have to fear what other people think about us. And man, do I need to preach that to myself every single day. It doesn't, doesn't matter. If we're good with God, that's the most important thing. We don't need to fear them. Finally, as we, we wrap up this time in this passage, in verse 30, Paul tells the church that, you know, you guys are you're following my way, and that's a good thing. They knew that, that Paul had been suffering, and they know uh, that they will see that as well, but they are doing it for the sake of the king. Both Paul and the church receive this, this gift of suffering, which is a really interesting way to phrase suffering. We try to avoid suffering at all costs, don't we? He says, no, this, this is a gift of suffering, so stand together for the cause of Christ in it. And let's live in a manner worthy of the gospel together. There's a ton in these verses. Let me just remind us where we came for, and then I'll pray for us. Paul starts and says, listen, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That heartbeat, live Christ, die, gain. What are you living for? What are you putting your hope in, your identity, your, your, your search for meaning and purpose in? From the, the second bit, how can we strive to live lives worthy of the gospel together? Last night we wrestled with the question of what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God in the town of Canmore, where we are? How, how, that's, that's Paul's, hey, just one thing, make sure you're doing this. What does that tangibly look like for us to represent God's kingdom as we're here? And finally, remember, we are teammates in this. We're to stand firm together, like that offensive line, like that rugby scrum, like that tug of war, whatever picture you need. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this letter that was written some 2,000 years ago almost, and yet it speaks so loudly to us today in our, in our time, in our context. We, we need this encouragement ourselves. I pray, God, that you wouldn't let these words just sort of go away as we leave, but, but remind us and, and, and stir up in us to evaluate what are we living for. How do we answer the question that for me to live is blank? I pray, God, that, again, that you would go after our hearts and our affections and that you would turn them to you so that we would want to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray, God, that you would continue to work in us uh, to, to strive together, to stand firm together as this sort of uh, army and, and athlete uh, language has taught us, that we would uh, fearlessly advance the kingdom, that we would strive to, to build your kingdom here. Show us ways we can do that. Remind us, stir in our hearts ways that we can be great kingdom citizens on the the block that we live in, in the workplace we work in, in the the schools we attend or we send our kids to or whatever else. Pray that you would speak to us and challenge us in that way. Jesus, thank you that you came, that you were the perfect example for us, that you, you humbled yourself and you walked on this earth and showed us what it was like to rightly relate to God and to others and to creation. I thank you that you are obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And you took all of our sin, all of our uh, distrust of, of, of God and his word and his work and all the ways that we've thought, I'm going to do things my own way. But you took that. You took our sin on your shoulders. 
And you paid the price for that by dying on the cross. We thank you that wasn't the end of the story, but three days later you, you were raised from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, and death. The, the battle is won. This battle, this war that we're in right now has already been won by you. We thank you that you're at the right hand of the Father interceding for us and we can, because of your work, be adopted into the family, get our, get our kingdom of heaven passports because of your work. And so we trust you, we lean on you. And pray, God, that you would help us as well here in the Bow Valley or wherever we're headed to fearlessly advance the gospel with joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.